The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Good morning. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Uh, this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about inhalation injuries. Um, some stuff we see pretty often during the winter, starting to see a little bit more in the summer. I actually flew one of these the other night. Um, pretty interesting topic. So with me today, I've got the Michael Griggs, uh, nocturnal critical care pharmacist here at UMC. Uh, spends most of his time at the critical care tower. Again, joining us is uh, Dr. Taylor Walks, one of our EM residents here at UMC, and then Dr. Joseph Doherty, Joe Doe, a board-certified emergency medicine and critical care, also attending physician here at UMC. Welcome this morning, guys. How are y'all? Good. Good. Yeah, thanks good. for having us on the pod. Yeah, man. Great to be back. All right. All right, guys. Welcome back. Uh, second episode of our inhalation injuries. Let's talk a little bit about treatment and uh, how we're going to truly manage these patients, what we're going to see. So first things first, uh, let's talk about the some of the high points um, as far as assessment and, hey, look, how do I know I got a patient with an inhalation injury from a first pulling them out or I pull up on scene in a volunteer fire department way out in the county somewhere. Hey, they came out of the house. I went back in. I was trying to find my cat. Couldn't find my cat. I was sitting there coughing. Uh, can't catch my breath. They sound kind of hoarse. That's obviously a clean cut. Hey, look, they may have something going on. Uh, is there something else, any little subtle clues y'all think of that say, hey, look, maybe – when they finally get to UMC or they get here 30, 45, an hour later, something you might think of, hey, look, I need to start getting a little more proactive and make sure I'm not developing those long-term effects down the parenchyma or anywhere else. I think, you know, if it's not the straightforward case of, like you said, someone, oh, they were in a house fire, like, obvious. Uh, I think Joe and I had a, a case uh, several years ago um, of a guy who we didn't find out till later because uh, EMS was able to come back and tell us that uh, he had actually – tried to get out of his garage from working on his car so any kind of subtle clues where was the patient when you found them especially if it's someone found down were they near a vehicle were they in a garage were they in any kind of enclosed space little subtle clues uh, uh, can be can be helpful to maybe trigger you to think about you know uh, inhalation injury I did not remember you were the resident on that case with me, but yeah, that's exactly <laughs> the case I was thinking of. His carbon monoxide, we couldn't figure out why he was altered, and his carbon monoxide came back 30-plus percent several hours down the line. <laughs> That'll do it. Again, some of the things we can really make a difference in their day of what did they inhale? Were they around a bunch of diesel or gas? Or To me, it's always that chlorine pool shed, or like they have a little closet off the side of it. Hey, they had... You know, chlorine last year was really hard to find. I mean, and so they may stockpile a couple of couple boxes of them. That's a lot of chlorine. When you start breaking it down, I mean, did they inhale that? Or what What could they also have gotten rid of? Again, talking about smoke, if it's black, it's bad. I think everything's not all the way broken down. So um, were they in a trailer like we talked about? Were they in somewhere that's got a whole lot of plastic? Were they in an industrial site? Um, was it? But even agriculturally, so like were they by a farm shop? Hey, I'm trying to save my million-dollar combine that was sitting in there i went in there to get it out back the combine out well what else was in there that was on fire all those kinds of things we start talking about symptomology the headache um do they have the cherry red skin we start thinking about um cyanide do they have was it like bitter almonds was it does it colorless was it odorless what kind of gas were they exposed to all those kinds of things 
the GI stuff. We talked about vomiting really bad with cyanide. That's something I've seen. Um, they just, Headaches going to be very prominent with yeah. carbon monoxide. They just almost like a subarach. They just can't get rid of it. Um, sudden onset. Michael, you brought it up in the previous episode. What does their mouth look like? A simple, hey, how much sits back there? What did you say the percent was? 67 or something like that? Yeah, 67 per- percent of patients with sit in their mouth had uh, cyanide levels. So, I mean, it, all those all those things externally. Uh, Taylor, you brought up great points about, hey, you know, we're, we're talking about inhalation injuries. These are the things you can't see. These are the ones that are really can be extremely hard. There's a couple of cases, Joe and Taylor, both of you all brought up, where it's not something you think of off the bat. They don't have any external going on. But those burns, like you said, Taylor, hey, they got facial burns. They got flashed. Or, hey, I've would you go back in the house or would you sleep on the couch, all those kinds of things? And at least in the from the ED and critical care perspective, a tool that can be useful is nasopharyngoscopy, actually taking a camera, taking looking down there, looking at their glottis. Um, I was reading some papers in preparation for the episode, and they're talking about how, you know, if their glottis looks okay, they'll probably be fine, um, even if they're hoarse. Um, if their glottis is not swollen, they'll probably be fine. Not, not helpful to our EMS colleagues, but... <laughs> but something to think in the back of your head, hey, long-term. So how do we manage these patients? So from a first responder standpoint, you may have limited limited stuff at your disposal. Um, like we said, until you know better, I, again, I hate the term rule out, but make sure it's carbon, not carbon monoxide, 100% of five two ain't going to hurt them. So hit them with that non breather right. The uh, saline nebs, something that's always kind of put in the back burner. You don't want to dry these patients out too bad, right? Drying out their yeah. alveoli is a bad day, especially if you've already got some damage to it. So I'm keep their secretions loose, keep them moving. You don't want to, you know, get concretions in those bronchi. Bad day. Yeah. Bad, bad day. Um, so, again, the, even those little things on the front end of giving somebody some saline nebs make a big difference in how their course goes when they, if they do decompensate in the ICU. It's, again, that's all trying to reduce them in the amount of days you're in there on the vent. We'll start talking about respiratory collapse. So first things first, they're probably going to be tachypnic, breathing, hey, I can't catch my breath, or coughing, nasty, black, nasty stuff. Anybody's ever been on a firefighter, fire scene, been inside a house fire, you come out and you're going to shoot snot rockets that are pretty much black for a couple of days. So um, those kind of symptoms, but they're quick and they didn't have an SCBA on, those are things you worry about. Um, after they get to Kipnik, they're going to slow down. And then that's when you start getting worried about it. If they start slowing the respirations down, they're only breathing 10, 12 times a minute. You're like, hey, come on, take a breath really good. That's when leads to the next part, that flash pulmonary edema, that pulmonary edema. The, the alveoli collapse. They have their dilated out. That nitric oxide's kicked in. That's when you start having a really bad day. Um, and then eventually respiratory arrest. And I think uh, Taylor kind of said it a little bit in our previous episode, but you can always extubate these patients. Have a very low threshold for uh, proactively or preemptively intubating these patients because everything just seems going to keep building and building and building and get worse. I always tell my residents, if the patient didn't need to be intubated, uh, you know, it's hard to tell up front with a lot of these patients whether they need to be intubated. And I would agree to have a low threshold to intubate them prior to transport. I tell my residents if they didn't, if they ultimately didn't need to be intubated, 99% of the time they're going to be easy to extubate. You know, we shouldn't have, we shouldn't be flippant about intubation. Intubation's a, it's a, it's a procedure with risks. It's a procedure that people do die during. But if 
got intubated because the EMS or outside hospital providers were worried about them prior to transport and they didn't need it, it's probably going to be easy to get that tube out. Oh, yeah, definitely. Something else is kind of new to us, especially new with our some of the capabilities we now have here in our transport team is high-flow nasal cannula. Um, COVID kind of brought it out. It's now widely accepted pretty much everywhere. Um, but even using that as a flush technique, hey, here's mm-hmm. – if you've got the capability for a transport, I mean, that's something big time to consider. Sixty liters a minute, sixty liters a minute. That's a you got a fine amount of oxygen transport, yeah. whether it's ambulance or air, either one. But if you're in a hospital, you got to wait a while, or you're somewhere where you can do that effectively. Maybe a great alternative, maybe more comfort for the patient too. Just make sure it's humidified. Make sure you're not just straight up drying them out mm-hmm. again, best you can. And you can do some things through high flow uh, nasal cannula, like we were talking about in our prior episode. You can use your uh, pulmonary vasodilators with that yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bleacher works great and, through you know, it. Michael and I yeah. do that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, some people might not have Bleacher, and so there's actually some newer literature out that you can actually use milrinone um, and nebulize milrinone. And every hospital should have milrinone. You have it on the helicopter, and it's you know another little, little dirty trick that we can use if we don't have uh, EPO to help kind of inflate some of those or uh, vasodilate some of those lungs that we need to open up. Even if you don't have milrinone, there's some stuff to say you can do nebulized nitroglycerin. So even if you're somewhere without milrinone, mm-hmm. everywhere should have yeah, some nitro. nitro. Um, nitroglycerin breaks down into nitric oxide. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So either either way, bring it out. Again, I'll put some literature in the put some literature on yeah, the lots website. Of break, lots of pharmacy literature. Yeah, back back all this up. I promise we're not just coming out of it, but <laughs> it it does work. Milrinone's a great great way in the back of your. Uh, back pocket to have especially yeah, if you're we're going, tr- we're going way way off label. yeah way that, way off label but yeah. it, it's something to think about we do that proactive airway approach again something you'll hear most everybody talk about especially when we start talking about ARDS but these are basically ARDS patients so they just hadn't got there yet peep what Joe brought up earlier peep and FO2 use that ladder off ArgeNet. it's a great tool it's easy simple things that go along with that so like clamping an ET tube between transitions uh, make sure you shut the patient up best you can. Again, we're trying not to develop anything worse than we already have. We don't want them leaking any more than they do. That sudden drop in pressure makes a big deal across that alveolar membrane. Um, truly, truly makes a big difference. Um, setting them low, up. Low tidal volume. Yeah. Low t- and my rule of thumb for that is, you know, average size adult male gets 450. Average size adult female gets 400. Small female gets 350. Yeah. And again, these are ideal body weight, not necessarily what their actual right. weight is. We have a lot of patients in Mississippi who are significantly more than their ideal body weight. But your lungs don't get bigger nope. as you get fatter. <laughs> your lungs don't get fat. And if, you, if you've got somewhere that's got a, you know, everybody can do the pretty well uh, portable chest x-ray and look at their lungs. Literally look at their chest x-ray of their lungs and it'll tell you how big they are. I mean, if you're, if you're worried about, hey, can I go too big or too small, an x-ray is a great visual representation. A lot of us are visual. I like to make sure if you've got it available to you as a ballard, okay, using a ballard, it's pretty well a standard of care, but it's not, it's not present everywhere we go. Um, you start having these secretions, you start worrying about, um, Taylor brought up the, the pink stuff coming out your ET tube. Yeah. You want to get it out. You want to make sure it's not obstructing your tube, obviously, but ballard's a good safe way to do that to where you maintain peep, you maintain your pressures and you're not just openly having to constantly recruit somebody. Every time you break that circuit, you're losing recruitment. So all that, PEEP, you know, we're talking about using, not being afraid of using your PEEP. And PEEP will work 
you can see peep start to work fairly quickly, but to get your full effects of peep, it's a couple of hours. At the, and if you break your circuit, you've lost all of that. We don't want to undo everything we worked so hard to get, then we just mm -hmm. give it back. Um, simple thing, set these patients up, no different than we do with CHF all the time. Make sure they're not laying flat. Set them up best you can. Um, it's very rare, especially in the acute resuscitation phase. You're gonna, you're, we're not talking about proning these people. It's not all that kind of stuff. Usually you just set them up, put them on some appropriate vent settings. They do okay. Now, long term, proning could happen, trying to get some recruitment going, but it's not something – these are not the patients you're going to, hey, we're going to do that. Even in the ICU, we do a good 12 hours of optimizing – you know, optimizing your vent settings, optimizing your volume status uh, before we are looking at proning them. I think uh, another important thing, so let's take this patient, right? So you have a patient, you're at a rural hospital, um, you have a patient come in, you think they have an inhalation injury, maybe you think they have carbon monoxide poisoning, common. you get them intubated, um, you do all the things we've talked about, uh, maybe you're giving them uh, nebulized heparin, you're sitting them up, you got them on appropriate vent settings, um, assuming that most people are aside this patient, right? So it's 20 minutes or so, right? Your accommodates worn off, uh, patient uh, is now starting to wake up. I think a really important piece, and I'll let Greg talk about it a little bit, is especially with patients with carbon monoxide poisoning, like we all think about uh, not getting oxygen to the tissues. There's also a thought that carbon monoxide attaches to tissues and doesn't let you utilize oxygen. So in these states, right, you start waking up, your basal metabolic rate starts kicking in, and your oxygen requirement goes up. So I think, you know, having appropriate heavy sedation for these patients, right, that's something you can do while you're, these hospitals are waiting on you guys or while you guys are transporting them. To This is not the patient to say, let's keep them kind of awake so we can get a neurologic no, that's not this patient. And, you know, maybe let Greg's talk about keeping these patients very well sedated. Yeah, Taylor made a really great point. And while there is, you know, effects of carbon monoxide blocking, you know, oxygen release and tissue uptake, these patients that have inhalation injuries most likely do have some component of some sort of dermal burn injuries. And that already puts them at a hypermetabolic state where they are just going to be crushing through sedation. And some of our opioids... Um, are a little bit more susceptible to some of these what we call pharmacokinetic alterations of critical illness and those two uh, the main one is about fentanyl so um, these are patients that I'm running for Dilaudid um, we're pushing you know two at a time this is not one milligram of Dilaudid this is two milligrams of Dilaudid pushing um, and then also I can't believe I'm saying this um, and these uh, guys know but we're using Versed large doses of Versed I would also like the amnestic properties of that because these are obviously very traumatic events, but um, we're able to achieve, achieve quick, deep sedation. And then on the back end, kind of once these patients are resuscitated and stabilized and move up to the ICU, um, profile does affect our uh, nutrition and be able to deliver high protein um, nutrition to these patients. So um, these patients are getting large doses of opioids preferably Dilaudid because it's less susceptible to our body just ultra-metabolizing it. Sedation pain management, always a big thing with me anyway, but burn patients is one of the hard things. You just, whether it's inhalation or external, I, they get probably the most amount of narcotics I'll ever give. Yeah, yeah. No. 
I think some of our burn patients uh, will about ran out of narcotics. I, uh, I have. Yep. <laughs> I, I've come close. This is an incredibly painful condition. A lot of narcotics. Ketamine's a great adjunct in these yeah. patients, too. Yep, absolutely. It usually takes a cocktail. It's not one drug fixes all. It's not, hey, let's put them on a burst mm-hmm. infusion or different or whatever. Whatever you've got available to you, again, that can be a big thing. But if you're using Ativan on an adjunct to sedatum on top of Versed or fentanyl and ketamine, Dilaudid, any number of different things, it's going to take a lot usually. Start talking a little bit about some other things. Before before we go on that intubation route, back up a little bit. You got somebody that comes in, say their strider, mentioned a little bit about racemic epi or albuterol. Is that going to hurt anybody? Nope. Um, only thing that bothers to me is you just brought it up and made me think of it is increased oxygen demand. You give somebody epi, start about pressors a little bit, does increase myocardial oxygen demand. If you've got somebody that you suspect may have carbon monoxide poisoning, mm-hmm. is that something you consider? Is it something, hey, I'm trying to stay away from epi or stay away from racemic? Or is that is, is your risk benefit with racemic, especially prior to intubation, you don't really care? If I'm worried enough about someone's airway from a burn that I'm thinking about giving racemic epi, I would probably just be going to intubate. Yeah, just go ahead and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't let it delay your definitive management. Like this, this is not going to be a. We're going to do this, and they're magically going to yeah. get better. We're not. You're not going to. I mean, it's, it's like they're physical burns to their glottis. Yeah. Um, you're not going to. That's going to take time to heal, and that's like days to heal. You're not gonna you're not gonna turn that around with some racemic. You might you know open their airway up a little bit better and help you pre-oxygenate a little better. Would be the main re- time I'd be thinking about reaching for that. But so let's leave it down the road of hemodynamic compromise. Some of these patients, whether we're doing the aggressive ventilator management, they have that increased interthoracic pressure. We're, we've talked about volume resuscitation. So typically we start out with Parkland, do two to four cc's per kilo, and then go from there. But uh, then based off of your output, Joe, you brought up great point earlier about interstitial losses, mm-hmm. um, the surface area inside the lungs. Again, we can't see it. It's something that's hard for us to fathom in our head, right? But you got to keep the urine output up. When you go down that road of, hey, I've got to keep them perfused to keep a pulse going, what is y'all's first line as far as pressures? What do y'all think of? Uh, if they'll let me, my first choice is vasopressin. Um, everyone needs a little vaso love. Um, but I think especially these patients – and in burn patients in general, I think there's a large amount of cardiogenic shock. When all four of us were in the room resuscitating this patient, we all made comments that this patient's heart is really, really sick. And knowing that all the alterations with burn shock, how you have all the catecholamines, you know, causing increases in your SVR, increases in your PVR, you know, potentially clamping down some of your coronary arteries. And when you have all your hemoglobin molecules occupied with carbon monoxide, that's like really clinically relevant. And so any potential first line agent that I can avoid that is catecholamine sparing is my first uh, recommendation. I don't know that there's necessarily a great evidence-based answer to this. I don't think that you're ever wrong to reach for levofed for norepinephrine as your first line presser with the caveat that I agree with Michael that vasopressin is a fantastic drug and if I'm getting up to moderate doses if I'm getting up to double digits 10 mics or more of levofed I'm reaching for uh for vasopressin as an adjunct yeah. for catecholamine sparing 
but especially with these uh, patients with inhalational injuries who are really concerned about their lungs, um, their pulmonary artery pressures, I want something that is not even going to touch that pulmonary artery. And there's alpha receptors in there, and so any sort of phenylephrine, your levofed, is going to touch those and increase the PVR that is already really, really high. And then when you talk about high PEEP, all that kind of volume, large amounts of volume, resuscitation, all that's kind of snowball. Now you're in a, almost an RV death spiral. And so it's really hard to get these patients back when they are this tenuous. So are you and these patients, uh, a lot of these places don't have vasopressin. Yeah. What if your options levofed or epi? Are you maybe trying low dose epi over levofed or, or you think I it's think not clinically significant? I think there's, uh, I'm not sure if it's clinically significant. I think if we're th worried about a cardiogenic component, I think there's probably somewhat better evidence for moving to levofed first. But gives you a little bit of beta, but it's not near as again that myocardial oxygen demand is what always spooks me. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. It, it doesn't just, it, it doesn't increase your myocardial oxygen demand. Yeah. norepinephrine doesn't increase it as much as uh, epinephrine does. Not as much beta, really, just enough beta to counteract your alpha. Yeah. Again, in pre-hospital setting, or if you're in a small rural ER, where, wherever you may be, you got what you got. So yeah. use what you can to maintain perfusion. Just. Again, we're talking about what you can yeah. use and what you can't. This is, it may if, be a better option. If you're only going to have one presser, I think leave a fed's the presser to have. Yeah, but, it's never wrong. Uh, vasopressin's a fantastic, uh, fantastic agent. And have been as I've been as I've gone along, I've definitely gotten a lower threshold. My threshold for starting vasopressin has gone way, way down. And Will, I want to ask you about one of our favorite drugs, maybe in these patient populations, uh, or one of our favorite drugs for this population is milrinone. So, what's your thoughts on maybe like some milrinone in this patient, with your concern for myocardial oxygen consumption? For me, milrinone, you know me really well. Milrinone is one of my favorite drugs of all time, but um, because it's not a direct stimulant on the heart, unlike dibutamine, we start talking about cardiac stuff, but. The thing with milrinone, I always worry about either one of those anotropes is that after drop. Um, so that, that pump's got to catch back up, right? You're going to, hey, I'm going to grade a cardiac output, but I got to have something to fill the pump. I got to have something in the pipes behind it. So for me, it's not the first presser I go to, or it's not the first drug I use to affect my hemodynamics. Um, I'm going to use ultrasound best. I have, I'm very fortunate to have one in my aircraft all the time. Um, and most places we go now, one of the best things that came out of COVID money, it was a lot of small rural hospitals got ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to take a look, yeah, see, absolutely. see what, see what my cardiac output looks like, see what I'm going with. Have I got to something you brought up earlier, Joe, and my volume resuscitated appropriately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, you look at the IVC, use my peep kind of I, – I do the same thing Joe does. I use I go up on my peep a little bit. Hey, my hemodynamics are junk. All right, well, I need to resuscitate better. Um, but trying to figure out, hey, look, is this milrinone going to be beneficial or not? I, I'm going to look at the heart first. Mm -hmm. Now, if they've got a bunch of ectopy, the patient we dealt with um, came in, had no external burns, just a little brief synopsis of the patient, no external burns, EMS did a great job. They realized, hey, look, we're already getting out of there. We're worried about flash pulmonary at this point. Intubated very quickly, um, but it's pretty quick right after he was intubated. Just don't know a whole lot of activity and stuff from their axis. And so immediately in my head, I'm like, this patient may have an old sick heart. That may be part of the component to this. Uh, and we're given drugs that are very stimulated and everything else. But is there a cardiac function problem here? Is this something that needs an adjunct like milrinone? Mm -hmm. Um so for me, milrinone is my drug of choice, especially in those patients. You start having ectopy and flipping axis, I stay away from dibutamine. That's just that's just me. I don't. I've seen the VTAC thing once or <laughs> twice in my career, and that's that's enough for me. I'm good. 
Um, but yeah, I, I like it. I also think, again, if you don't have EPO or Valetri inhaled, well, we're on option two. Uh, yeah. Again, off, Joe put it best, off-label down a rabbit hole, but yeah. it's there. Mentioned a little bit previously, nebulized taproom. What's the dose again, Michael? 10,000 units. That's all right. Um, again, we're trying to rec- reserve people when doing anything nebulized. So, again, try to put on your uh, inspiratory side of your circuit if you've got it or make sure you're bagging it appropriately, keeping your peep with a peep valve, all those kinds of things. Um, clamping AT tubes, using the bronchodilators. Some studies have gone out there with their talking about heparin. They do, what is it? Is it Q2? Correct me if I'm wrong. Q- Q2, uh, heparin, and then albuterol. So they're just kind of rotating them around. Um, and they might even throw some N acetylcysteine nebulized. Yep. Use some NAC. As well. And um, if your patient, if you do have some NAC and you're nebulizing that for help kind of clear some of that gunk out, they do bronchospasm. Just give them a little albuterol. That will help kind of attenuate that. Again, this is inhaled NAC. This is not IV. But mix it. I think the, the study I saw that had the best best outcomes was they literally just mixed them together and hit them every – they were hitting NAC and albuterol, and then they were hitting heparin. And it was yep. literally every two hours they just rotate them. Yep. Um, start doing that kind of stuff again. We talked about it with hydroxycobalamin. Let's go through your liver enzymes out of whack anyway. But um, this is usually they keep this at least for seventy-two hours. They kind of do this rotation stuff. It's not something they once you start it, you just turn it off. Usually, the best benefit is you keep it going um, for long periods of time. And with a medication that has really awesome patient-centered morbidity implications. So again, we're talking about resuscitating these patients. Um, Big key for most everybody is urine output. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye on urine output. Play this fully early. Um, sometimes you get busy and you're doing all these other things. And hey, I want to keep somebody alive. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm there myself. Um, Foley is not always everybody's favorite job, but in burn patients, it makes a big deal. Whether it's inhalation or external, both of them. Foley is the standard. The goal is standard to make sure we're doing the right thing for the patient. Um, so that 0.5 to 2 max cc's per kilo per hour. Again, Joe and Taylor, both of y'all brought up the, and Michael as well, that positive fluid balance, that increase, man, the mortality rate goes through the roof. Um, don't quote me on a number, but it's bad. So try to keep it less than two. If you start getting more than that, back off a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, you might maybe even like favor on the lower side just because we know that burn patients receive, you know, almost 200% times the predicted volumes based off our equations. And so, uh, we like to turn these fluids up, but it's also really important to actively titrate them down. Let's get the other one out of the way. Talk about hydrogen cyanide. Um, so colorless, bitterless almonds, again, uh, unlike carbon monoxide, which is colorless and odorless. Um, again, old furniture, older buildings, um, flash pulmonary edema. These are the ones with the cherry red skin. There, there's one thing with um, cyanide specifically that can clue you in to say hey look this is this is cyanide nothing else and it's a lactate yeah like like joe said for those of us who don't remember what a mitochondria or cytochrome c is basically you're making the patient have anaerobic metabolism yeah they they jump into it real fast (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and i think like you said you're checking a lactate and so actually uh you know there are different cutoffs that people use i think depending on who you talk to which study you read i think a more conservative number people use eight Anything less than eight, uh, the risk goes down. Anything greater than eight, your risk is or pretty high. Some maybe less conservative would say ten. Um, I've talked with several of our toxicologists here, um, and they range, you know, eight to ten. 
um, is kind of their number, um, which you can get a little bit of lactic acidosis from uh, carbon monoxide alone, but it really, if you're pushing 8, 10 plus of lactate, um, I'm going to be reaching for cyanogen. Real quick, we talk about the, the dosing of this. It usually comes in a 5-gram vial. You're doing 5 grams over 15 minutes. And you can repeat it times one. For the kids, it's 70 per kilo, 70, uh, 70 milligrams. Um, and then, again, you can repeat it times one if you need to. Usually it's, I don't know, you give the first dose, kind of see what happens, and then go from there. I've never seen, I've seen people get the second dose, but it's always totally patient dependent. How are they doing hemodynamically? How are they, are they getting any better? Are they getting worse? That kind of stuff. You also see anything different with that? Is it pretty much any other criteria? In my experience, it's usually a pretty dramatic response to it. Yeah. Absolutely. And what's really cool about the cyanokit is that it'll actually bind intracellular cyanide. So you can really bind it inside the cell where it's affecting the mitochondria and kind of turn the lights back on the powerhouse so we can start crushing through aerobic metabolism. So I thought that was actually like really cool. And right. then um, just kind of quickly some um, points just about signing kit because um, I've mixed two in my life and I've thrown both of them at will. <laughs> um, but so in the kit, you get the medication, a transfer spike and some ventitubing, but what it doesn't come with is your diluent to reconstitute it. And so they tell you that you can use uh, 200 milliliters of normal saline, but Hey, you might not run, might have not having more normal saline bags in the hospital, or you might only have a bag of lactated ringers on the truck or on the helicopter. And so, fortunately, this is compatible and can be dissolved with lactated ringers and even D5W. So there are many different fluids that we can use to reconstitute this file. It, which brings that compatibility. I mean, every, you know, you talk about really fancy drugs most of the time. Hey, it's got to be on its own line. We want to keep it yeah. separate. We don't want anything, you know, turning all kind of fun colors and stuff. But, um. These are one of those, literally just shove it in there. They, they don't care how you get it. You just get it in there and be done with it. Yeah, um, run it through your cleanest lawn. Also, the most important med. fun fact, don't get weirded out when the urine changes color because it's going to turn pink. It's going to turn very, very pink. Yeah. Um, Everything turns red. It's like you spilled a big, big uh, vase of Kool-Aid. Yeah. Um, don't get weirded out. That's normal. That's okay. They didn't just develop an AKI. I promise they're okay. But the one thing that it will um, cause is it'll affect your interpretation of your laboratory values. And so anything that is uh, uses color metric to determination, used to quantify the lab, it's going to be altered. So uh, fortunately, there's a really nice table within the package insert of the signing kit. But for instance, you're going to have an artificially increase in your bilirubin. And for instance, that can last for four days, falsely elevated. It can falsely elevate your hemoglobin. But then it can decrease your ALT and amylase. But fortunately, it really doesn't have any effect on your electrolytes. Um, or your like white blood cell count or anything, but it's going to definitely cause some lab alterations. Um, anything else y'all think of when you think about burn patients or inhalation burns, big treatment pearls? Just, and this is more of a couple days down the line um, in terms of, but in terms of hemodynamics, remember these patients are also at super high risk of sepsis. They get all sorts of opportunistic infections. You know, your skin is your body's primary barrier to uh, protecting yourself from microbes and that if that's gone these patients will get nasty polymicrobial infections nasty yeah. multi-drug resistant infections yeah and really after that 48 hour mark is when you start to see some of those acinetobacters those pseudomonas and 
without with just because of all the broad spectrum antibiotics that they see, they do develop MDROs pretty quickly, escalating to some pretty heavy duty antibiotics. So leading to that, would y'all prophylactically give them something? Just go ahead and hit them with the sepsis criteria kind of stuff, or I'd let them declare themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Don't just don't just wait. Hit like them. if you if you're if you're hitting them with antibiotics up front before they have an infection, a lot of what you're doing is just selecting for those resistant infections, mm-hmm. which they're probably going to get anyhow. But if you can delay that by a few days, you're helping yourself out. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Guys, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for thank inviting you me to the pod. Very cool. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.